Good morning, Grace Church. Amen. Good to, good to be back with you this morning. I'm going to ask that you take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. This is where we have been over the last several weeks as um, Doug and Stuart and Jeremy have taken you through passages here in Matthew 5 through 7. This is our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And right smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is our Lord's instruction on prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And uh, in a sense, I suppose it is that. But if you really want to see how Jesus prayed, go to John chapter 17. That is his high priestly prayer. It's on the night before his crucifixion. What Jesus is doing in this passage is actually teaching his disciples how to pray. So let me pray with you just now, ever so briefly, and we'll look at this passage together. Again, Lord, as we open your word, we thank you for the distinct privilege that is ours to both teach it and to hear it. And so I pray that you would be the one who manifests yourself to us this morning by declaration and that we would, by way of application, take these words and find them both necessary and useful in our lives. We commit our time to you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There are parts of the Bible that are known even to unbelievers. Those parts were probably learned in childhood, maybe in Sunday school, vacation Bible school or something. And they carried with individuals through their adult years. They remember them. Probably the most quotable and misapplied portion of Scripture that comes from the lips of unbelievers, especially when confronted with their sin, is Judge not, lest ye be judged. Amen? But there are also those texts which, once encountered, seem to become a part of us. They stay with us. And I think of passages like the 23rd Psalm, for example. Most of us memorize that early on in life. John 3.16, which we often call the gospel in a nutshell. There were portions of the Ten Commandments that we memorized and remembered, but perhaps the most famous, if we want to use that word, of all the Bible passages that even unbelievers know pretty much by heart is the Lord's Prayer. Um, you probably memorized it as a child. You probably recited it in Sunday school. You probably repeated it many times in many situations. If you played athletics in high school uh, in the day when that was permitted, you probably kneeled and prayed the Lord's Prayer. So as we return to our Lord's Sermon on the Mount this morning, I want to remind you that Jesus is in the middle of a, an extended portion here. This is a lengthy sermon, uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It has been described for us as the King's Manifesto. He's basically instructing his disciples on how they are to live righteously as kingdom people with Jesus as their king. And as I said, right in the middle here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, we find what has come to be called the Lord's Prayer. Last week when uh, Pastor Doug preached, he did a great job of, of setting up this passage for us. He, he actually took us through the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. Uh, he sort of left a parenthesis in the middle where the Lord's Prayer occurs. And so we're going to look at that more carefully this morning. Um, 
Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And the reason I can say that is you may be aware that there is a shorter version of this prayer found in Luke's gospel. If you went to Luke chapter 11, for example, in verse 1, we find the disciples of Jesus coming to him and saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And it's a shorter version, but it's in essence the same prayer instruction that he's giving here in Matthew chapter 6. So what, what we find is Jesus is actually teaching, he's honoring the request of his disciples, and he's teaching them how to pray. When we were in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, you remember that Jesus structured his comments around a phrase. He said, he, he told the disciples, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You remember that? You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. We find a similar type of thing occurring here in chapter 6, except the words are a little bit different. The instruction is a little bit different. Jesus is saying in chapter 6, when you do, and then you can fill in the blank, whatever it is Jesus is instructing us to do, he'll say, don't be like. So when you do your religious practices, don't be like. And then he sets two negative examples in this passage for us. The first negative example are the re religious hypocrites of the day, the Pharisees. And he criticizes them because they often stood in the marketplace or in, in a public gathering and uh, they would pray these uh, pious prayers and everyone would look at them and say, my, what a super saint that person is. Jesus is saying, don't be like that hypocrite. But later on, he also says, don't be like the Gentiles who pray with meaningless phrases, just heaping up repetition after repetition before their, their uh, I, would, I would guess we could say, heathen gods. And they had many gods to whom they would pray. And they would just say phrase after phrase, repeating these things, hoping to cajole or hoping to cater the favor of their God in order to, to get that God to grant them what they requested. But Jesus says to us, we need to be praying with the right motives and the right reasons. And that's where he goes to in this passage. And so what I, I would just suggest to you this morning that when you encounter this passage, and I know it's, it's even printed in my trusty ESV Bible, right above it, it says the Lord's Prayer. This is not so much the Lord praying. This is the Lord giving instruction to his people how they ought to pray. And in this, prayer, in this instruction, Jesus is actually breaking this down into three subsections that I want to share with you this morning. And the first of these is Jesus is warning us against hypocrisy in prayer. And that's in verses 5 through 8. Let me read these for us and then make a couple of comments. Beginning at verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, you'll notice that uh, Jesus says here, when you pray, and the implication there is that 
it's not if you pray. It's, it's when you pray. Jesus is expecting, He's assuming that His disciples are going to be people of prayer. And so if you and I are not praying, if we don't have a prayer life, it probably reveals a great deal more about us than we would want to believe. But it's just not the act of praying that Jesus is concerned about. He's concerned about the reasons that we pray. And I pointed out to you that, that Jesus has already highlighted two bad examples. You know, it's like somebody said, you're never a total failure. You can always be used as a bad example. Well, that's, that's the hypocrites of, of Jesus' day. That's the Gentiles of, of Jesus' day. And Jesus says that when, when they pray, they're, they're praying with wrong motives, they're praying with wrong reasons, and they already have their reward. But it is not the reward of God. It's the reward of people. And if so, if you're craving the uh, applause of, of people, then go ahead and follow the examples of these hypocrites. But Jesus says, if you want the reward of God, then there's some things I want to say to you. Now, he's not forbidding public prayer here. So I don't want anyone to think that you know, you're somehow in violation of God if you pray in a public service or you pray in the presence of other people. That's not what he's saying at all. But it is highlighted for us that Jesus is saying several times to do certain things in our religious practices in secret, in secret. The implication is that if you're going to pray publicly, it should be something that is born out of a life of prayer privately or a personal time of prayer with God. It should not be the only time you pray to stand up in church and pray, but it should be born out of a life that is filled with prayer to begin with. Let me say a word about that word, uh, hypocrite. Uh, we've probably touched on this several times uh, in other messages, other series. But the word hypocrite actually refers to one who judges or speaks from under a mask. And it was a word that was used in the ancient Greek theater. Uh, back in that day, they didn't have an abundance of actors. They didn't have cast of thousands who would act out plays for people. But often, there would be a play actor who would play several roles. And he would speak his part. But how would you know which character he's representing? Well, he had a mask that he held up before his face. So if one person in the play was speaking, one character, he would hold up a mask. And then if the part changed, somebody else started speaking, he would hold up another mask. And so the word came to mean one who speaks from under a mask. And Jesus is saying to us here, don't be like that. Don't play different roles in different settings. Be who you are. Be open, be honest with yourself and with God. Don't try to impress other people. Jesus frequently used the term hypocrite to talk about the, the uh, Pharisees of his day. And maybe you remember in Matthew chapter 25, he pronounced a series of woes or judgments against these religious leaders. They not only misunderstood the scriptures, but they misapplied it as well. And so Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm here to set the record straight with you. Don't be like those hypocrites. Don't be like those who speak from behind a mask. And then again, he talks about the Gentiles, and he says they, they just use repeated phrases, words after words after words that are all similar sounding and really are covering no ground in terms of prayer whatsoever. Jesus says, don't be like them because those empty phrases don't mean anything before God. He already knows what you need. 
Don't feel like you have to keep coming back to him with the same phrases time and time and time again. So sounding repeated words and phrases was useless. It was necessary. And so he begins this prayer basically by establishing that for us, saying don't be hypocritical in your prayers. But after telling us not to be hypocritical in prayer, then he gives us a handle for prayer, if you will, a pattern or a paradigm for prayer. Here's how you ought to pray, Jesus says. And that begins in verses 9 through 13. Now, Jesus was perfectly aware how difficult it is for us to pray effective prayers. Sometimes when we pray, they, they often fall short of what we desire to say. And even though the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and presents them faultless before God, we want to pray effectively. We want to be, have that sense that we've actually been communicating with God. And so Jesus gives us this instruction here. And what I want you to do, I want you to do a favor for me right now, if you will, okay? I want you to, in fact, don't follow what I'm reading, but I want you to listen. And you might want to close your eyes and I want you to imagine you have never heard the Lord's Prayer, this passage before. I want you to just kind of close your eyes. I want you to imagine hearing these words for the very first time and imagine Jesus is speaking to you and he's telling you how to pray. So you ready? Okay. You can play along or not. But if you will, close your eyes. Here's what Jesus says. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, you can open your eyes. Jesus begins by saying, pray then like this. Now, he's not saying pray these exact specific words. He's giving us a model. He's giving us a pattern for prayer. Stuart prayed a few moments ago, and he followed that ACTS acronym, you know, the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. He said, that's one way to pray. It's not the only way. Well, I would say the same thing about this prayer, this instruction on prayer. Jesus is saying, here's some instruction. Now, you model your prayer based upon what I've taught you here. So we've given it the title, the Lord's Prayer. It's somewhat misleading to call it the Lord's Prayer. And here's why it's misleading. When you get down to verses 12 and 13, what is Jesus saying in his prayer? He's asking for forgiveness. Was there ever a time in the life of the sinless Son of God when he needed to ask for forgiveness? No. No, Jesus never needed to ask for, for forgiveness. So this is not really a prayer that Jesus is offering. He's, he's giving his disciples instruction. He's teaching them how to pray. He's tutoring, if you will, his disciples, including us, how to pray effectively so that we can be heard and responded to by God. So we can take this instruction on prayer, we can break it down broadly into two sections. And I'm just going to call these two sections the reverence section and the request section. Because the first part of this instruction deals with our reverence toward God. And there are three things that he has to say to us about reverencing God. 
The first is God's name. Secondly, it's about God's rule or his reign. And then thirdly, it's about God's will. So let me just say a comment about each of those. With regard to God's name, let me just focus on this for a second because I think we know this for the most part, but sometimes we forget it. Jesus begins this prayer by addressing God as our Father in heaven. Now, that should strike you as something. Because here's the deal. Not everybody can call God Father. God is not the Father of all. He is the Creator of all. But in a very specific sense, He is the Father of those who have come to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you've turned from sin, you've repented from sin, you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you become a child of God. You can call God our Father, my Father. Jesus says, our Father who is in heaven. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you've never by faith confessed your sin to Him, embraced the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ as your own, this prayer is meaningless to you in terms of reciting it and saying it. Jesus says, we can address God as Father because of our relationship with Him. So if you haven't yet embraced Jesus Christ, that's where you need to begin. That's what gets you on praying ground with God. How can you be assured that God hears your prayers? Now, God is omnipotent. He, knows, he, he is all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He certainly can hear your prayers. But do your prayers have the ear of God in terms of causing Him to respond to you as His child? Not until you know Jesus. So that's where praying ground is established. That's where we need to begin. So that's God's name. We revere God's name. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means holy. It means sacred. It means worthy to be praised. It's not a name to be taken lightly. It's not a name to be taken in vain. As our Father, we pray, may your name be hallowed. So the name of God is the first thing that we need to understand gets us on praying ground. It's to whom are we praying? We're praying to our Father. But secondly, Jesus tells us to pray for God's rule or God's reign. That's a critical part of our prayer. Look what he says. He says we're to pray, your kingdom come. Do you really pray that? Or do you just pray, get me through this day into tomorrow? Your kingdom come. That should be the longing of our hearts. In his helpful commentary on Matthew, R.T. France points out that this phrase, your kingdom come, is not so much asking that something may be true, which is not true already, but rather that his actual kingship be fully implemented as people submit to his sovereignty. In other words, when we pray for God to establish his kingdom, we're saying, Lord, we want you to establish your sovereign reign. Al Mohler wrote a little commentary on uh, the Lord's Prayer. And he, he listed eight implications that would come from that single phrase. As we pray, your kingdom come. Here's what we ought to be praying, or not what we ought to be praying. Here's what we are praying for when we pray, your kingdom come. Ready for this? He says, that history be brought, brought to a close. That all nations rejoice in the glory of God. That Christ be honored as king in every human heart. That Satan be bound 
evil vanquished and death be no more. That the mercy of God be demonstrated in the full justification and acquittal of sinners through the shed blood of the crucified and risen Christ. That the wrath of God be poured out upon sin. That every knee and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the arrival of the new heaven and earth, a new creation. Let me ask you something. As you go through that list of eight things, is there anything on there that you shouldn't be praying for? No. I mean, if, you're, if you have the heart of God and you're truly seeking to honor him in your prayers, every one of these things are part and parcel of what we should be praying for. Your kingdom come means this. That's all implied and more in the phrase your kingdom come. This is what we're praying for, the kingdom of God arriving. And there's nothing in this list that we should not be longing for and praying for every single day. But there's something else in this that Jesus says we need to be praying for with regard to reverencing God, and that's God's will. Notice it says that we're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as Moeller's list of eight implications would suggest what we are praying for when we say your kingdom come, your will be done, is we're saying, God, bring heaven to earth. Bring heaven to earth. And again, is not that something we should be praying for? The providential plan of God being fulfilled in full. Jesus wants us to see that reverence for and worship of God provide the very foundation for prayer. If, if you just come to God and, and you just jump into the prayer and you just start spouting off all the things you want God to do without acknowledging who God is, I think we're sort of like jumping into the deep end of the pool without really knowing how to swim. So let's move to the request section because the good news is not only are we to reverence God, but God gives us permission. In fact, he invites us. He invites us to come to him with our needs and requests. So we find that request section, verses 11 through 13. What a comfort to know that God encourages us, isn't it? Isn't, what an encouragement it is that God says to us, bring to me your needs. We prayed for that earlier. So we find this in 11 through 13, and I want you to notice that there's a shift of pronouns from the second to the first person in this section. And it reveals to us the permission granted by the Father to come to him with matters that are pressing upon them. God is actually saying, my child, my child, what's, what is burdening you? What is weighing on your heart? Bring that to me. And there are three categories of needs, our requests for needs that are pointed out here. First is our physical or material needs. Then it's our spiritual needs. And then, for lack of a better way of saying it, our moral needs as well. So real quickly, regarding our physical or material needs, he says we're to pray for our daily bread. Now, most of us are not starving, but we all have daily needs. He could have just as easily said daily clothing, daily shelter, or any of a number of things that are part of our daily life. But as we come to God with our requests, we need to remember something. He says, come to me with your needs, not your greeds. Now, he doesn't promise to give us everything that our heart's desire is set on. But he says he will meet every need that we have. 
in terms of our spiritual needs, and I suppose it's normal that when we pray, we generally pray for our physical needs before our, physical, before our spiritual needs. But our spiritual needs are more important, are they not? Jesus tells us here in his instruction that we're to petition God, and remember, this is a need, to forgive us our debts, or you could insert the word trespasses, as some translations do, or sins. Forgive us our debts, trespasses or sins, as we have forgiven others. I want you to notice something carefully. You see that little word as? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We would prefer that not to be there, right? But it is there. It's a comparative particle that governs the interpretation of this entire request. What are you asking God to do when you pray this? You are asking God to forgive you in the same way that you forgive others. Isn't that what the text says? Forgive us as or like or in the same manner, in the same way that we forgive others. Now that adds a caveat to the request, doesn't it? I mean, that adds something we may be tempted or maybe even intentionally overlook. Listen to what John Stott says about this. He writes that forgiveness is as indispensable to the life and death of the soul as food is to the body. That's not too hard to digest right now, right? Basically, he's saying that we need to have a spirit or a willingness to forgive to a comparable degree to our desire for food. No matter how badly you've been hurt, no matter how grievously you've been offended by others, it always pales in comparison to what you and I have done to God. We have impugned his holy character. We have a great debt that is owed to God. And for us to harbor ill will, bitterness, and even hatred toward another individual is inconsistent with the redeemed and forgiven relationship that we have with God. Not to mention the fact that he is producing the character of Christ within us. It's at this point in the prayer that we encounter the essence of the gospel itself. Because as Christians, we need the gospel as much as an unsaved person needs the gospel. The same gospel that saves a person sanctifies a believer. We need to be preaching that same gospel to ourselves day after day after day. You know why? Because we need it. We need to be reminded not only of what God has done for us, but who we now are, who we belong to. We must remember that sanctification is as much a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ as our salvation. Now, Jesus is going to amplify that in verses 14 and 15. But before we get there, he concludes this pattern for prayer by addressing our moral needs in verse 13. And here we're told 
not to be led, or we're to pray not to be led into temptation, but to be delivered from evil. If you were to look at a Greek text, you would notice that there's an article before the word evil. We would say a definite article in English. And so this is sometimes translated, and I believe legitimately so, deliver us from the evil one. It's not a bad translation. And if that is the correct translation, then basically this is a reference to Satan. And we're told to keep us away or to protect us from Satan's temptation. The word for temptation is actually, can actually be translated testing. It has actually two uh, renditions or ways of approaching it. It could be something positive. It could be something negative. And as has often been said, Satan will always tempt us to bring us down. He will always tempt us to get us to sin or to, to hurt our testimony. Whereas God will always test us for our approval. And it could be the exact same thing. God would use it for good. Satan would use it for evil. And what we're praying here is that the protection of God would keep us from the evil one. Because you and I are not strong enough to stand against the evil one. He is much too strong for us. And the only way that we can ward off his temptations of us is by drawing near to God. So God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from this evil, from this evil one. And so Jesus has gone through this prayer. He said, you know, I want you to avoid hypocrisy in prayer. That's, that's, going to, that's, that's going to be meaningless prayer if you're hypocritical. Uh, I also want to give you this, this handle for prayer. You need to know that prayer originates with a reverencing of God, who he is. But also, I mean, we're free as the children of God to offer our requests to him. Praise God for that. And if the, if the instruction ended right there, we could all say, hey, it's going to be a great day. I'm going to go home, watch a ball game. Everything's going to be fine. But don't miss verses 14 and 15. You say, well, the prayer's ended. Yes, but the instruction has not. I want you to see in verses 14 and 15 what this is saying. This is a solemn, this is a sobering section of this instruction on prayer because it describes circumstances with which we are all likely familiar. Jesus has already said in verse 12, go back and look at verse 12. It's about forgiveness, right? He said here, forgive us our debts as or in the same manner, the same way that we have forgot, forgiven our debtors. Then you go to verse 14. He picks up the subject of forgiveness and it begins with the little word for. What's the word for? Therefore. <laughs> it's an inference. It explains what he's already said. You can translate it because. It's explaining what Jesus has earlier said about forgiveness. And what is it that he infers? What is it that he explains? It's a warning. And it needs to be understood as such. Let me read verses 14 and 15. 
For, okay, he's talked about forgiveness. For, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, let me emphasize something before we get all bent out of shape. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to believers. How do I know that? Because throughout this section, he refers to God as your heavenly Father. So what I'm suggesting to you is that in this instruction on prayer, Jesus continues to speak to his children. And he's telling them about forgiveness. It's telling us that the lack of forgiveness on our part in offering forgiveness to those who have offended us, hurt us, sinned against us, will have a detrimental effect upon our prayer lives. If you're harboring unforgiveness, anger, bitterness toward another individual, it will negatively affect your prayer life. So regarding these two verses, verses 14 and 15, let me quote John Stott again. This is a lengthy quote, so bear with me. John Stott has written these words, and this, I think this really hits the nail on the head. He says, when God forgives sin, he remits the penalty and drops the charge against us. And that's where we all say, amen. 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 Then he adds the addition of the words, as we also have forgiven our debtors, is further emphasized in verses 14 and 15, which follow the prayer and state that our Father will forgive us if we forgive others, but will not forgive us if we refuse to forgive others. This certainly does not mean, now get this, this does not mean that our forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven. It is rather that God forgives only the penitent and that one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. Let me say it this way. Nothing poses a greater hindrance to our prayer lives than maintaining a lack of forgiveness toward another individual. Although others may never come to us, and seek our forgiveness, or even want it, or care about it, that does not mean that we should withhold the willingness to forgive. The relationship may, may never be repaired. It may never be restored. Reconciliation will, may never take place, but we must not withhold willingness to forgive those who have offended us. And I can just hear what's going on in your mind. Because it's going on in my mind too. Perhaps the area in which we're most susceptible to an unforgiving spirit is in the home. Husbands, wives, parents, children. 
For example, Scripture exhorts Christian husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7 to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now notice this phrase that concludes it. So that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm not making this up. That same principle doubtless applies to believing wives as well. Wives, forgive your husbands. Live with them in an understanding way. It's, you know, relational problems within the home are inevitable. I mean, every home has them. But Scripture exhorts us in Ephesians 4, 26, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So the willingness to forgive must not be put off. Scripture implores us to forgive sooner rather than later. Nothing good, nothing good comes from withholding forgiveness from another person. You may recall that Jesus illustrated that truth with a parable. In Matthew chapter 5, we saw it earlier. It was there that he applies this principle to an individual who had come into the temple to worship. You remember? And he comes and says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and then first go be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Mark it down. A spirit that is not willing to forgive another places an awkward and unnecessary barrier in our relationship with God. It affects our prayer lives, our approach to God. We must be willing, we must be even eager to forgive if we hope to know the experience of the unconditional forgiveness of the Heavenly Father. Someone caught me at the door between services they were at the first service. They said, are you saying that this means God won't forgive us our sins if we don't forgive others? Here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying to us, you will not be able to experience the joy and full realization of God's forgiveness in your life if you're unwilling to forgive. It's like a barrier. It's like God wants to pour joy upon you because you've been forgiven so much, but now you've got this unforgiving spirit and God can't break through that until you're willing to forgive. You can be a Christian and you can be one of the unhappiest Christians in the world. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. And you say, well, isn't it just important that I'm saved? You know, do I really have to go the extra mile? Yes, because that's what Jesus requires. Jesus begins to bring his teaching on prayer in for a landing with verses 14 and 15. I mean, really, I mean, you, you can't separate, when you start at verse 5, you can't separate this section on prayer until you get down to verse 15. He's still talking about prayer. You can't cut it up and say, I'll I'll buy that portion, but not this portion. No, he's bringing this whole section on instruction and prayer in for a landing. And if we refuse, we forfeit that reward from God that he's talking about here. So he exhorts us to forgive others in the same way that we have received mercy, that we have received forgiveness, that we have received grace from God by faith. 
So important is this last point to our prayer lives that Jesus told another parable in Matthew 18. I just want you to think through these words with me. Um, one of Jesus' disciples came to him. His trusted, maybe his most trusted disciple came to him. And he was, he was feeling good about himself that day because he said this in Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, Peter thinks he's setting Jesus up, okay? Because the rabbi said, if you forgive six times, man, you're good. You're good. Seventh time, mm. But Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother? And then he adds, seven times? In other words, I'm going to one-up the rabbis. Look at Jesus' response. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And if you have an old, earlier translation, it, it reads 70 times seven. So whichever one you take, that's a lot of forgiveness. So the point is that the forgiveness that we grant to other people should not be apportioned out. It should not be measured out incrementally. As those who bear God's likeness and are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, we're called to forgive as he forgave us. So then Jesus proceeds to tell this story, this parable. Remember, this is in response to him saying to Peter, no, you, you forgive until you lose count. So he tells this story about a servant who owed a massive debt, debt to this king. King calls him in one day and he says, I'm going to forgive you your debt. Great. So the, the servant then goes out and he sees a guy that owes him a little bit. And he takes the guy and he strangles him and shakes him and he says, give me my money. Forgetting that he had been forgiven this huge debt. In telling this story, Jesus brings it to a close by saying, the king heard about this servant didn't like what the servant did after being forgiven for so much. So he went out, he had him apprehended, and the text tells us this, that he had him delivered to the jailers, thrown in the pokey, until he should pay all his debt. Now, if you looked up that word jailers in a Greek lexicon, you know what it means? It means torturers. He handed this guy over to the torturers, and some, some versions of the Bible actually translate it that way. And the parable concludes with this application. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. He's not talking about the loss of salvation here. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about you've got something inside of you that is eating you up. It is torturing you because you are harboring unforgiveness. And the saddest thing is that those who suffer in the prison of unforgiveness is that they hold the key to their own self. They can get out any time. They're the ones being tortured. The person that you're not forgiving may not even be aware of that, but it's eating you up. 
but by God's grace and by the willing help of the Holy Spirit and, and by the instruction of God's word, that person can take that key, unlock the cell, and offer forgiveness to the person that he holds the grudge against. All memories, all present agonies that have been held inside, all bitterness can be released. The name Frederick Buechner may mean something to some of you. I can't endorse everything that he written. He's a rather a liberal theologian, to be perfectly honest. But there's something he wrote about anger that has stuck with me for a long time. Because you see, by nature, I'm not a forgiving person. By grace, I am. Frederick Buechner writes about anger, which I think is the, the fertile ground in which unforgiveness grows. Here's what Buechner writes. See if this sounds like you. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. No one, no one suffers more from your lack of forgiveness than you. And no one benefits more from enjoying the grace of God's forgiveness than the willingness, the one who is willing to forgive others as he or she has been forgiven. Let that hang for a minute because I want to lead us in prayer. And before I do, I'd, I'd like you to just take a moment and just bow your heads with me and let's, let's just have a moment of silence and let's consider what Jesus has said about prayer here. Has anything he said here personally challenged you? And maybe we think about this area of forgiveness because it seems to be the one that is, is strongest or the one certainly that's got the most prongs on it that keeps poking at us. But let's just sit here for a moment in silence and just re-examine our approach to God in prayer. And then I'll lead us in prayer. So please bow your heads and close your eyes. Gracious God, what a joy it is to know you as Father and to be granted the privilege of approaching you in prayer. Your name is holy above every other name. We long for the coming of your kingdom in full measure 
and for your sovereign will to reach its climactic and complete fulfillment when we will at last be able to breathe in the very air of heaven. We thank you for your daily provision for our every need, abundantly supplying before we request and granting us far beyond what we could ever ask or think. Thank you for forgiving the incalculable number of our sins against your holy character. Such mercy has been made available to us through the loving sacrifice of your sinless Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Keep us mindful of the infinite price that he paid on our behalf, especially when others offend us and seek to do us harm. Grant us the ability to forgive in like manner as we have been forgiven. May our prayers not be hypocritical in order to seek the approval of others, nor become thoughtless phrases in which we hope to merit favor with you. Instead, may our every approach to you be in spirit and in truth as we seek to honor you and not ourselves. Be pleased to take the word which we have seen this morning and apply its truths to us precisely where we need it the most. For those who have yet to respond to you in repentance and faith and do not yet know you as Father, clearly show them their need for Jesus Christ and be pleased to draw them to yourself. Save them for Jesus' sake, even as you sanctify those who are already yours. Thank you for the privilege of centering our thoughts around your word this morning. Apply these now to our hearts and deepen our commitment to you this coming week. It's in faith that we offer this prayer to you according to the pattern left for us and in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.